not hard to capture the theme of that passage, is it? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your love, and we're grateful for the, the chance to reflect that back to you is through music and, uh, and glorify you because of your love for us and, um, and enjoy it and walk in it and manifest it and just uh, be able to sing it back to you. There's just something about music that um, moves our hearts, and we thank you for that. Father, we are so grateful to be here to, to, um, to declare your death and resurrection the ultimate example of a God who loves us, and we proclaim it every Sunday, but we want to proclaim it in our lives as well. So, Father, as we look and see what your scripture has for us and what it's, what's it's telling us today, we ask that you move us. Uh, we, we carry burdens with us this morning. We carry weight with us. We carry concerns and anxiety. And we carry people, other people's burdens with us. But, um, but we know that even though there are, uh, as the song said, scars ahead, that uh, we can still rest in your peace. And we ask that you give that to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This is our, our last uh, message uh, over the series on hope that we started at the beginning of the summer, like in May, I think it was. And um, we've been trying to, we talked a lot about personal hope, but the last few weeks I wanted to kind of focus in on the Christian hope, this broad picture of hope that we are a people living a promise, a people of promise, and that's what we're going to come back to. Um, i got to turn it on, don't I? Um, John says that uh, perfect love casts out all fear. Well, I think the opposite is also true. Perfect fear casts out all love. And uh, what I want to do is kind of review a little bit of what we were talking about through the summer, just to kind of get us back into to the, the rhythm of things that uh, is hope. Just and that's, I asked some questions at the very beginning, and I just kind of want to go back and look at how we've answered them. Is hope just waiting for God to act, or does hope require human involvement? Well, there is both. Uh, it, does, it does involve human involvement, but it also rests in the promises of God. And uh, the book we were looking at that I was using is, uh, defines hope like this. Hope is the belief that your future can be brighter than your past and that you have a role in making it better. And I think that applies not only to us personally, but also us as a church, as a group of Christians, that yes, it is a brighter future, and we even have a role in that as well, that we do have a role in it. And you might remember the diagram where the authors were saying that we have these goals, that in our personal lives we have these goals that we can set. Even just getting up out of bed is a goal, is something that we intend to do. And it requires two things. It requires pathways, and it requires an agency. And uh, that's how we move toward, that's how our role, that we have the goal and we can move in it, but we also have a pathway. And when the, goal, when the pathways are gone and when the goals are gone, then we have to readjust. But uh, it does have a role and it does have God's promises that we depend on. What is the difference between hope and wishful thinking? Well, hope it means that we, uh, we have this thing we can rest on. That it's not just keep fingers, keeping our fingers crossed. That there is something that God has told us that we can depend on. And it requires trust, which we'll look at in a minute. What is hopelessness and how does it manifest itself? It's a, <clears throat> they use, uh, Hellman and, and Gwen use this uh, diagram to explain 
what hopelessness looks like. It starts off with hope, but then when our, our goals are, are short-circuited or blocked in some way, our goals become uh, blocked and we get kind of angry, we get rage, and then that will lead to despair when we are unable to adjust the goals or find alternate pathways to reach that goal. When those things are not available, we kind of end up in despair, and really, ultimately, apathy is the opposite of hope, where we just give up and, do every, and, and don't do anything, and that can lead to a lot of things. Um, Paul says three things remain, faith, hope, and love. How does hope relate to the other? I think they, they are related very intimately and intricately. Uh, hope, when we ever see faith in the Bible, uh, that's the best way we can do it, is translate it. But I would suggest that because of our culture and stuff, we've kind of believed, kind of taken the idea that faith just means believing a couple of doctrinal statements, of uh, theological points, that we just believe these intellectually. But in the Bible, faith is not like that. Faith is trust. So if I were you and you're reading your Bible and you come across faith, just substitute the word trust in there because that really captures what the, the Bible is getting at. So I believe that there's, these things are related, that we trust God, we trust what He has said, we trust His promises, and doing that trust and plus our action brings hope. And I am convinced that faith and hope are necessary to be together in order for love to be manifested. In order for us to experience love and for us to do love, that faith and hope have to be related. This trust in God, trust in what He said, and that, that we have a brighter future that is brighter than our past. And then with that confidence, with that trust, then we are able to do love and we are able to experience love. And the other one, does, does hope make, really make a difference in how we live? And that leads us to today. This is what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, does it make a difference in the way we live? Um, as a people of hope, we function out of love, not fear. That's how we function as believers. Thanks to some, uh, a, a need to sell a bunch of books, and as well as thanks to Hollywood and thanks to some sketchy theology, when we hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, we think things are really bad. We think tragedy. We think things are, are awful. And uh, that's all you got to do is go ask Mr. Google to give me a list of movies, apocalyptic movies, and he'll give you a list. I, brought, I wrote, wrote a few of them down. I Am Legend, you might re remember, A Quiet Place, Living Dead, Planet of the Apes, uh, Hunger Games, Matrix, Interstellar, Blade Runner, uh, The Terminator. Uh, the, the one thing that these, all these things have in common is that the future is going to be bad. And it's going to be real bad. In fact, it's going to be dystopian bad. Well, all of that is because they misunderstand the word apocalypse. All that means, apocalypsis is the name of the book, is the Greek name of Revelation. All that means is to reveal. And what John has done in the book of Revelation is pulled back a curtain to reveal things to us. That what we are seeing in the world, what we're seeing around us, is kind of this, is pulled back the curtain is this cosmic war this cosmic battle that we have made a mess of and the world has made a mess and, and the creation is a mess and yes, things are bad, but that's not the end. The end is one of hope. The end is good, really good, utopian good. The end has the picture and we have to see this in John and, and I know Revelation is just a messy book and it's really hard and I had a, a 
professor in, in seminary who say, you know, why are we taking things literally out of a book that's full of symbols? And that's a very good question. The book is full of symbols. And it's very hard to understand exactly what all these, especially when we're 2,000 years away from it, understand what the symbols are. But the symbol in the end of the book, to me, is pretty clear. And what we have is heaven and earth renewed, restored, and brought together as it was, as it was originally in the beginning. It is brought together, it is restored. He talks about the Jerusalem, which is a symbol of where God lives, is a symbol of where God reigns, and that Jerusalem is coming down to earth, meaning that God is going to rule the heavens and the earth, and he will rule with justice, he will rule with mercy, he will rule with love. He is not the fickle, stingy dictator in the clouds who's barking, who's cranky and barking orders. He is, like we saw last week, the heavenly father, and that is good. He is not the fickle dictator who is barking orders. He is the heavenly father who is wiping away every tear from every eye. That's good news. That's the real apocalypse. That's the real revelation. That this is what we are moving toward. This is where we are going. And John examines this perfect love in chapter 4 that Laurel just read. And I think we need to discover and, and kind of look at ourselves. Do we operate out of fear or do we operate out of love? And I think just to give us a, a kind of a, an idea of what we're looking at that maybe do some, some self-evaluation, and I may be stepping on some toes here, but for example, if you are obsessed with the end times and you have this idea of the end times and you're so obsessed with it that you know it's going to be dystopian, and so it's going to be horrible. So you buy pounds and pounds and pounds of food. You may be operating out of fear and not love. If you see the end times is coming and so you're buying more guns and building more walls, then you might be operating out of fear and not love. When you look at your moral and ethical standards in your life, are you doing this because you do fear punishment like John says? Or are you doing it out of love? We were talking about um, traffic laws. When I'm driving down the highway and a cop is behind me, I make sure I'm driving the speed limit. That's law. If I'm driving down the highway and my wife was with me, I keep the speed limit because I love her. That's the difference. Are we doing it because we're afraid to get a ticket out of punishment, or do we do it out of love? If you are keeping your moral behavior and your ethical standards and you see anybody who is different than that, as whether it's gender or race or sexuality or, or uh, sexual orientation or uh, any beliefs different or political persuasion, whatever those are, and you see them as ugly and, and demonic and evil and a threat and horrible and you want to get rid of them, you're operating out of fear, not out of love. That's the difference. If you uh, are anxious for your safety and you see the outside world as a threat and nothing but a threat, and so you want to insulate yourself, you may be operating out of fear and not love. I have a cartoon that I kept in my illustration file. It's two guys talking. And one guy says, 
I don't understand it. I have spent my entire life pointing people to Jesus. And the other guy says, well, you're using the wrong finger. I asked my wife if I should tell that or not. She said, be careful. But you get the idea that we are talking about the gospel and we are using fear instead of love. We are operating out of fear instead of love. The true apocalyptic vision is one of hope. That's John's vision. Not a dictator, but one who wipes away tears. It is an apocalyptic vision that is not just theological points that we believe that we sign off on, whether you're premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial, or, or whatever those fancy, fancy words is. It's that it's got to be part of us. It's got to be, become in us that we, that we are going to be cared for and we live it out. It becomes in us. That's what I was trying to say with the prayer, the Lord's Prayer last week, that we pray the Lord's Prayer because it needs to become part of us, and better yet, we need to become part of it. And, and when, it comes to, when it comes to death, frankly, what happens immediately after death, the Bible's not that clear on, okay? Uh, Jesus says, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places, okay? Paul says to, to die is to be with Jesus, who's better, okay? Um, Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, we got that. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Are we going to be souls, spirits? Are we going to be angelic beings? But I think what the Bible is showing us here is that this is temporary, that the real hope is Revelation 21 and 22. They, these early Christians, they knew the difference between a spirit and a resurrected body. That we will be material and spiritual, but more so. We will be fully human, but more so. That's our hope. That's what we're looking forward to. That's where we're going. That this God, one God is the creator of the universe, and that this God of the creator of the universe is one of generous, exuberant, lavish, generous love, and that this God of the universe this has, has created good news that has happened, and there will be good news that will happen. And that's where we are. And so we operate, we function, we live out of love and not fear. And why do we do this? We do it for the sake of the world. So we function out of love, not fear. And as people of hope, we live the reality, not a dream. This isn't just something we, we kind of have in our head that we kind of invent, and it's a fantasy land. This is something that is real, that we are hoping for. The Bible calls it, Shalom. We are hoping for shalom. This is what the Bible is giving us. It is a, it is a, um, uh, a threefold attribute of peace with our soul, with God, peace in our relationships with others, and there's a peace and a justice that's in the society, the social order. That's where we're looking for. And everyone, everyone on this planet is, to a certain degree, searching for shalom. They are searching a life of goodness and peace. And we'll look at that a little bit more. Joni Mitchell even sang about this back in the 60s. Uh, maybe you know her from the 60s and 70s, folk singer. In her song, Woodstock, she, she diagnoses the problem perfectly. We are stardust. We are golden. We are caught in the devil's bargain. 
and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden. Now, I don't always get my theology from 60 folk singers, but she is right here. She didn't give us a good solution, but she at least diagnosed the problem. And that's where we're headed. That's where, we're, that's where our situation. And this whole thing of, of shalom is, is so much deeper and broader than just, just our word for peace. It is, means wholeness and soundness. It means friendship, contentment, flourishing, uh, abundance, uh, tranquility, harmony, uh, on the individual level, on the state level, on the nation's level, God and man, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. The gospel is called a gospel of peace, a gospel of shalom. And Jesus expands all that, denominate, all, that, all that definition from the Old Testament of shalom. He expands it to even more. He says, also, you got to love your enemy. So it even goes further than that. That's what we're hoping for. That's our hope. And it sounds irrational. It sounds irrational to the non-believer. It sounds irrational to us sometimes that this just seems so too good to be true. But this is what Christ has promised, reconciliation. And he says God will pour himself into the new creation, into the new world and new heaven. And Paul says he will be all and in all. That's not pantheism. That's not panentheism. He is pouring himself into completely the, the creation. And I, I cannot emphasize this enough because I think we've, because we've gotten our, our theology kind of messed up and our priorities messed up, we operate out of fear instead of love. And this gives us a position to, offer, to function out of, live, out of love. So not only is it shalom, our hope is life-giving power. It is life-giving power that brings harmony into discord. It brings love uh, out of hatred. It brings wholeness out of fragmentation. It penetrates every, every sphere, and it is a gift that God has given us, and therefore it is a gift that we can give away. We cannot give what we do not have. If we do not have hope, then we can't give it away. But if we have hope, we can share it. We can give it away. <clears throat> it's not just passivity. It's not just resignation. It's just living honestly, honestly in the reality, in the reality that he has given us. Kierkegaard says this, we need to buy, put away our fears and stop living a lie shielded against responsibility before the truth. We must enter into the fullness of life where everything we do is done in relation to the eternal. Now, this sounds really grandiose and it sounds very Kierkegaard, okay? But all he is saying is that we need to keep the picture in our minds. We need to keep that hope in our heads of what we are looking forward to and that needs to cover, color everything we do. That we keep the eternal perspective in our minds of what's transient and what's eternal. And the thing that is internal, we keep it in our mind, and that's where we go. That's the final picture. I was reading about, reading a, I had this book about uh, the Holocaust, and there was by a rabbi, and he tells this story about when he was a, he was a little boy, he's a, a Holocaust survivor. And he was in, in one of the concentration camps with his father. And at Hanukkah time, his father took butter and built a little menorah for Hanukkah and would light it. And the little boy, he says, I asked my father, says, shouldn't we be consuming these calories? Shouldn't we, these are, should we be burning these calories? And the father said, you know, you know we can live a long time without food. You, we've experienced that. But you can't live a day without hope. 
You can't live a day without hope. Hope is indispensable, he said, and it must be available anywhere and everywhere. So a certain level, everyone, everyone has a certain level, a certain level of a desire to have this level of life. Um, people of hope, as people of hope, we also have a responsibility and a privilege. And this is where I want to land this morning, that we have a responsibility and a privilege. And we have a responsibility and a privilege not only to live it, but to share it. We have to learn how to share it. I mentioned the Lord's Prayer last week and about how we kind of come in through the back door sometimes to the kitchen. And uh, we go through the kitchen and we go through the salad bar and stuff till we finally meet the host. And that's all fine. The host is just glad we're there. But it's so, so, so much better if we meet the host first. And we meet him first and we realize he is a heavenly father. And then once we know this is heavenly father, he is worthy of the worship that we give him. And, we, and then we, we are, he is worthy to ask that his will, his kingdom will come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we can get to our needs of forgiveness and, and daily bread and protecting us from evil, and it becomes part of us, part of, but we do need to share it. So what do non-believers need from us? First, they need genuine friendship. If we are operating out of love, they need genuine friendship and know that we're not just on some marketing scheme and we're just trying to close the sale. They want genuine friendship. We talk about loving our neighbor in the abstract, but we need to start loving them in the particular in the specific, uh, to, to learn, to ask questions. We need to learn, and you may take this wrongly, but we need to learn how to doubt well, that we don't have all the answers, that we need to learn how to say, yeah, I'm not so sure about this, but this is what I think. We need to learn how to listen better, and we need to learn how to be humble about what we do not know. We don't know everything. A lot of it we do take by faith, and there's a lot of answers we just do not have. And we start to ask those questions about them. And we start to enter their world. And then they will enter into our world. And then we can share why we feel like Jesus Christ is the most compelling and, and uh, exciting person who ever, who ever lived on the planet. And then maybe we can ask some questions and, and answer questions or not answer questions. But genuine friendship, not a marketing technique. They need to know that the universe was created with meaning and purpose. With me, and I'm not talking about necessarily uh, six-day creationism. I'm just talking about just that the universe is meaning and purpose. It has meaning purpose. That there is this miraculous tenacity of life. There is this absurd variety of life on the planet. And, and uh, this tells me that there's something behind this, that there is some sort of motivation, some kind of force behind this creation. There's something else here, that there is this purposeful pattern, a purposeful movement in this, and that there are these intangibles that we don't know about, we can't touch, and they exist. And we know they exist, but we can't say, oh, that's love or that's faith. We know they exist. And that tells me something, that this universe was created with a purpose, with meaning and purpose, and they need to know that love is the significant, powerful force in this universe. It is powerful. It is significant. It is important. 
It is not just um, a sentiment, a feeling. It's, it's more than just this evolutionary blip that uh, some of the evolutionists will say, well, we evolved this with love so that as adults we would make sure our, our young stay alive, and so we love them. Well, that's fine on that relationship, but it doesn't explain the inexplicable. It doesn't explain why I would sacrifice myself for the love of someone else. It doesn't explain that. There's no evolutionary benefit of that if we're talking about survival of the fittest. There's something else here that's something else that is this powerful force that it arises, it doesn't, it doesn't just arise from nothing, and that it requires relationships. Even the God we believe in exists in a relationship, in a three-person relationship. And they need to know that love is more powerful than our mistakes and our pain. This is the only solution we can look at. The biblical story tells us why we're in this mess. It tells us the truth about humanity. It tells us the truth about, about the world, that it is broken and that it is unavoidable. And that we choose poorly again and again and again. And God still loves us and he still rescues us. And it doesn't go down in despair. And they need to know that Jesus will reign with mercy and justice and love. That his sacrifice on the cross took all the evil on himself and freed us. And he became victorious over that by the resurrection. And they need to know that he will reign with mercy and justice and love. That he will pour himself in. There are a thousand ways people can find God, but they all come at the crossroads of Jesus Christ. They all come here, and there may be tons of ways to do it. I think I told this story before, but I had one of my students ask me about, this is in, in Mexico, and I had one of my students ask me, he says, well, I have this friend, you know, and, and he can't tell, he can't say, you know, when he accepted Christ as his Savior, but he claims to be a Christian. And I said, well, that's possible. But you just, you know, you, you don't really have this moment, uh, this, this, this black and white moment here of accepting Jesus as your Savior. And he looked at me so surprised. He says, are you sure? I said, yeah, you're looking at one. The way I explain it is that I'm walking on the beach and suddenly I found out I was in the water. I grew up in a Christian home. We always talked about Jesus. We loved Jesus. We were always in church. And then one day I just realized that this salvation was also mine. And I can't tell you that I walked the aisle or raised my hand or anything like that. I just know it's real. And I can't tell you the time or the day that happened. I just know it happened very subtly. There are thousands of ways people come to Christ. Thousands but it will be at the crossroads of Jesus Christ. And finally, we need to stop hiding it. Stop hiding it. This is good news. This is hope. This is what people need. This is, this is unique, and it is this, this moving response to pain and evil and God, that God has suffered with us. It's an unbelievable way that God did this, that he suffers with us, and we didn't know what he didn't, we didn't have to suffer by ourselves, that he knows what it's like to feel abandoned. He knows what it's like to be spit on. He knows what it's like for his friends to turn on him. He knows what it's like what we're feeling. And this is the God of the universe. 
who did it. And we need to stop hiding it. And this is what we look forward to. Not, not the movies of The Matrix or I Am Legend or The Living Dead. It is a life full of joy and peace and shalom. And we need to stop hiding it. And that means what I mean by that, we hide it maybe because we're too embarrassed to say it out loud, maybe. Or don't want to talk about it, don't want to bring it up in polite company, you know. We might start an argument or something. Or you might offend somebody. But we also hide it when we attach other stuff to it. When we attach all these things to it. And I'm speaking today mainly of, of social causes and cultural issues. And those, not that those things are not important but we can't attach it to this. We hide it. You ever been in an airport looking for your luggage? It's a black suitcase, and there's about 100 other black suitcases looking for it. That's kind of what it's like. We've got this jewel, and yet we, we hide it with all this other stuff. Not that they're not important, but it's different. Those things are transient. Those things are temporary. This is eternal. This is real. So we're going to live it out. My feeling is that if hope is not transforming you, then it's just wishful thinking. Real hope, biblical hope, transforms us. It changes us. And we are to live it out. If it's not changing us, it's just wishful thinking. It must lead to transformation. It must take us in the, in the path of transformation so that we live it out. I, I, Sue ran across this, this photographer, if I pronounce his name right, I can't, not sure I can, Stefan Doschkin, he's Austrian, so it's something like that, I tried to say it with a German accent. Uh, he wanted to quit smoking, so he said, I needed something in my hand, so I, I picked up a camera and started taking pictures, and now he's a world-famous photographer. But one of the things, this first project, was he was fascinated by people in art museums and how they fit in with the picture. And so he took a bunch of them, and I, I mean, I went through probably a hundred of these uh, on, online looking at them. But he thought this was really interesting how people became almost part of the painting itself, that they became part of the art itself, like this. There's just, I'm just going to flip through a few of them. I like that one. And I like this one, too. This one lady, she almost, at the, I'm assuming this is the dedication of Jesus in the temple. And uh, the lady at the bottom looks like she's just one of the spectators, one of the people who came to see it. And I thought, what a great illustration of what this is like. That we have this painting of what's gonna, what we're looking forward to, our hope. We have this painting. And we are to become part of the painting. We become part of the picture. And that's how we live our life. That we live our life as almost a reflection of uh, already part of the picture that we are looking at. And there's really something really attractive to that. It's something that's really, really attractive. This isn't just mind tricks that we're playing with wishes. This is saying that hope wins. That Jesus wins. And we are to announce it this great mystery of God's salvation for all peoples, for all nations. We, we joyfully announce it. And yeah, some people will rejoice with us. 
Some people will just be indifferent. Uh, some people will be hostile. Uh, not everybody will receive it, but we still got to tell it. We still got to share it of why Jesus is so compelling for us. That is the fruit. Shalom will not come any other way to these people unless we tell them, unless we live it and we share it. Our hope must lead to transformation or it's just wishful thinking. We see the painting, we become part of it. Let's pray.